You're listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Each week, we take a single episode of a science fiction TV series, movie, or audio and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Simon. And tonight we are looking at episode five of season three of Bugs Nuclear Family. And I'm just going to remind listeners uh, or inform them, depending on where you stand on listening to previous episodes, that my system for taking notes is that I watch the episode with my iPad and I, I hit the beats. I take down things that I think are plot points I might need later. I, I take down things that I think are funny or I think are weird or that I have questions about. And then later, sometimes not immediately afterwards, I sit down and I write up the synopsis by going through the, the notes point by point. And, uh, sometimes I can tell when I'm writing my notes, depending on you know how many there are, how few there are, or how snarky they are. Um, it, I can feel it flowing into my words. So, um, just to episode synopsis, uh, strap in, folks. Beckett and the whole Bureau of Weapons Technology team are running security and escorting Rostov, elected president of a former Soviet bloc country, to a hospital for some highly specialized cardiac surgery. Because that's what team bugs do now. Deal with it. Rostov has a normally inoperable and fatal heart condition. Still, with this new experimental magic elixir made from Amazonian viper venom, Rostov can be saved by good old British medical innovation. Hurrah! A sniper tries to kill him, but Beckett saves Rostov and his very young, very attractive wife from death. Beckett gives chase but loses the assassin, but not before attaching a tracker to his car. Why would anyone want to assassinate a dying diplomat? The answer is simple. Rostov's country, during the Soviet era, was armed with some particularly nasty Medusan missiles. These are multiple warhead nuclear weapons. Rostov wants them decommissioned and destroyed. Others may not be so keen on giving up their nuclear weapons. For the British part, they just want this to happen for world peace and the betterment of mankind. Also, they'd like the lucrative contract for decommissioning the weapons, please. Dying, with just a few days to live, Rostov is hosting a trade reception at the embassy. As you do. And Beckett bumps into Channing. And they're all awkward. Channing is there to try to get lucrative British contracts and even gives a free sample GPS tracking bracelet to Rostov's wife, Natalia. As you do. The would-be assassin has been identified as Sean Driscoll, a mercenary, and Ed and Alex track him down via the tracker. The trail leads to Conflict Hardware, an arms dealer. Breaking in, they glean that Conflict Hardware's managing director, Bridget Kay, is planning on selling those Medusa weapons. But before they can learn more, Ed is captured, but escapes with Alex's help. Back at the embassy, it's time for Rostov to take his magic elixir, but it's been stolen? Without it, he will die. Luckily, there's more at the wizard's lab nearby, and Ross and Ed go to retrieve it. Driscoll is there first and is pouring it down the drains. There is a fight, and Driscoll gets away, but most of the magic elixir has been destroyed. 
Ross salvages a few drops from some of the unlabeled broken bottles. It's enough for Rostov's operation. It's clear that there's someone in the embassy working against them. So Beckett has Rostov taken to a specially designed safe house. No, strike that. He takes them to their office, where they'll be safe. Only Rostov, his wife, son, and chief of security are allowed to go. Ed, Ross, Alex, and even Jan have identified Natalia, the young, scheming wife, as the likely culprit. But Beckett refuses to believe that. She's young and pretty, and she talked to me and said I was an attractive man. She couldn't possibly be bad. Beckett escorts Natalia back to the embassy to get some important things when they are kidnapped by Kay and Driscoll. The demand is to give them the Medusa missiles, but Rostov is made of sterner stuff and will not yield. Back to plan one. Driscoll will assassinate Rostov. Ross gets an idea. Natalia still has that GPS tracking bracelet on, and after having Ed obtain the tracker from Channing, Ross will be able to track down Natalia and Beckett's location. At the hospital, Driscoll's second attempt at sniping is thwarted when Ed draws the blinds on Rostov's room. He goes for his backup plan, getting into the surgery disguised as a doctor and killing Rostov there. His cover is rumbled, and after a fight in the operating room, he's overpowered, taken prisoner. Presumably, he'll be put in a car that will later explode, but we'll see. Kay has left a booby trap that will kill Natalia and Beckett when one of Beckett's resourceful colleagues finds them. It's a bomb with a pressure-sensitive switch on the stairs. Roz, Beckett's resourceful colleague, falls into the trap. But with teamwork, they turn the bomb around and murder Kay with it. Back at surgery, the real inside man is revealed. It's Rostov's son, who is clearly jealous that his dad has a hot wife younger than him. He's got a gun, he's got the drop on Ed, and he's going to inject his dad with poison. Ed cleverly increases the oxygen in the operating room until Rostov's still-lit cigar explodes, as they do. The distraction is enough for another fight during which Ed struggles not to be injected with a poison hypodermic needle. Someone is injected, and the fight continues its way up to the roof. Rostov Jr. has just about got Ed in a position to throw him off the roof when the poison kicks in, and Rostov Jr. falls to his death. Once again, the world has been saved for lucrative British contracts. But this just isn't the show we were watching the first two years, is it? It definitely seems to have lost its Doomwatch element. I mean, in a way, it could all be there because you've got the nuclear disarmament angle, but that's just not what the story's about. And they got a weapons dealer, and what does their assassin use? A boring old rifle. I mean, they probably have rocket launchers. They could have taken that room out, Ed's lines notwithstanding. I mean, like, it, it really is the scope and yeah, okay, it was kind of crazy when John Danielle was using a bazooka to blow people up in his own office. But, you know, at least they were they were trying. <laughs> it was like, hey, sniper rifle. Okay, sure, that's a good idea. I mean, I, I, I kind of think I prefer this to that, I have to say. There, there were episodes during the John Danielle season that were interesting because of their, uh, because of the kind of concepts so it was it was it, they were still carrying forward that that thing from series 1 but what they've done here i think is to sort out that whole arc nonsense by i, I guess kind of tightening it up into a into something that's more around character development of the main team 
albeit not always 100% successfully. And <laughs> the the kind of casualty of that has been the more imaginative and interesting um, pretexts for why they're being called in. I, I certainly have the same note you had of just, you know, they're just, they're doing security detail now. This is, this is kind of, yeah. What's the point? What's the point? It, why, why is there not a team? I mean, isn't it? Why is there not a real security team? Well, yeah. And, they suck and at it. It, if you're in a big department, like that, that, you know, they're, they're, they're part of, well, I mean, they obviously are their own kind of discrete department, but they're part of the government security machinery now. And you'd have thought there would be less need for them to kind of multitask than there was before, where they were the only people in the outfit. And if a client came and said, I want you to do this, then you just, you know, you didn't say, oh, well, it's a bit out of our remit. You just said, oh, well, uh, how much are you paying me? Yeah. Whereas now, yeah, I very much think you would say, well, we're part of this organization so that we can specialize in the really kind of high tech aspects of security work. If you need security bodyguards, we got security bodyguards. You know, we have specialists. We have real safe houses. We should, or they should have, but they they're they're seriously in the the wrong. They're doing the wrong work here, and, and you know it. It starts with the second they step out of the out of the car and they're like, oh, we're doing security detail for this guy. It's like, why? Why? No, no, because he's got nuclear weapons back in the Soviet bloc is not the reason to assign this to the Bureau of Weapons Technology. It just makes no sense. Also, before I forget it, because it's staring me right in my notes, Ed breaks into to Kay's office with what incredibly cool high-tech device? A pocket knife? Come on. <laughs> where, where are the good old days when they had a... a a doohickey because everyone had electronic <laughs> locks on their doors. Come on. I, I, I was reminded of something when I was watching this episode twice, twice I was reminded of this. And that is at the, the beginning when our security team that's supposed to be protecting this guy, which presumably they have some reason to believe he needs to be protected is nearly sniped from a high vantage point nearby. Uh, and then later on, when they have him in the hospital and they have the windows open and they aren't protected and he's in front of a window and there's a guy on a building across the way with a sniper rifle, I am reminded of something that happened to me in the 80s. This, this, is, this is my Ronald Reagan story. So I used to be uh, an electrician, like a construction electrician, repair electrician kind of thing, long, long, long time ago. And... Uh, do you, do you know what a pipe bender is? I assume it's one of those doohickeys that you use for bending pipes. Correct. Correct. It's like a long metal pole, oh. an arm, and then it's got a, a like a fanned out metal sponge at the other end that has a channel in oh, it. Oh, sponge. You put the, yeah, I don't know what the word for it is, but it's a fanned out thing. You put the pipe in it, it's got a channel in it, and then you you put it on the floor and you pull back, and it's got the it's got the degrees marked on the device so you know how far to pull it if you want a 90 degree angle because the pipe will bend back a certain amount and but it, you know and you can you can bend the electrical conduit with it it's it's what it's for they're used on commercial jobs in the u.s at least everywhere 
and it's not uncommon to carry one over your shoulder with the the sponge end down in your hands and the the handle up over your shoulder. We were working at this place called Biltmore and uh, doing some work on a roof. They were redoing some of the, the air conditioning conduit and or the, the electrical conduit for the air conditioning. And President Reagan was in town and the Secret Service came in force on us because they had spotted an assassin sniper on the roof with a rifle, with guns. So if you ever want a, a, a frightening experience, is to watch. Uh, I know the Secret Service have not exactly been doing stellar performance lately, uh, but uh, uh, they're a scary bunch when they think you're trying to kill somebody, uh, particularly that they're protecting. And uh, I, I thought of that people. both times. I thought of that both times. A guy with an actual rifle is on a vantage point near someone that the security services were protecting. I'm like, that that's not how it works. They actually know you, you have to check the you have to check those places. And uh you know, I, I can see how a pipe bender might look like a rifle barrel. <laughs> I mean it it makes perfect I mean it was it was diffused extremely quickly. It's just, this was not <laughs> you know they did check the pipe bender because it could have been a weapon, which would have been cooler for, for like an episode of Bugs, a guy disguising a rifle as something. But no. Um, and and the, the caveat to that, or the caveat, the, the, the follow-up on that was later that day, at lunchtime, we were down on the ground on the greens, going, hey, wasn't that scary? And the presidential motorcade drove by and Ronald Reagan stuck his head and shoulders and arms out the limo and double waved at us as we went by like a dog would when he's you know hanging his hanging his tongue out the door and are thinking yeah okay i can see why the secret service probably is particularly worried about that guy because uh yeah <laughs> i don't know maybe he knew maybe he'd heard the story <laughs> maybe he was thinking oh those are the guy yeah all right i don't know but it was kind of funny anyway yeah i think of that when i when i um every time i see a sniper but but again i could forgive gizmos for not doing that i cannot forgive then they're not gizmos government anymore. assigned i know oh There's i see government I see assigned what you mean. yes security detail on this foreign dignitary and it's it's just inexcusable and, it, and it's yes yes it's really hard really hard to believe let's see obviously we had uh uh chekhov cigar in this which in a way, I think that he should have had that cigar in absolutely every scene in this thing. And that they kept having to take it away from him. Not that it excuses the surgeon for getting him as far as the operating theater and then going, no, no, we're taking this out and putting it out. I don't know. Was it in a bedpan or something? In a, in a room filled with oxygen. It's like, it's just, I know it was the 90s, but still, I don't, I don't, I'm pretty sure that they probably would have said, look, you're going to blow yourself up. So you think you can put this thing out? Yeah, I, the time to not be passive aggressive, this stuff. What, 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 I mean, what did you think of the story? I'm sorry. I didn't ask. I got distracted by that. But what did, <laughs> did you enjoy the episode? <laughs> yeah, actually I did. I mean, I think that I, qu I quite like the kind of slicker, tighter version of the stories, even though I think they're less 
interesting from a sci-fi perspective. And they do have these, you know, enormous gaping plot holes. And <laughs> you can't help feeling that if if they were better as a, as an actual security team, and there's no reason why they should be, but if they were better at it, most of this story wouldn't have had to happen because they would have prevented things from getting out of hand in the first place. And yeah, it would have been, there would have been no jeopardy. So I I didn't think the 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 kind of the on the ongoing character arc stuff that we've talked about before and some of it being a bit annoying obviously notice gets, i left it out of my recap completely yeah yeah get it get it it gets features in this but it's not kind of awful awful it's i mean i i quite liked the scene where the new wife and beckett are chained up to a bomb and she decides it's a good moment to start questioning him about his love life and whether he fancies Roz. So, you know, I'd, yeah, I'd, I, I'd I, prefer, I prefer that kind of thing to the kind of, well, we had a little bit of it, but the kind of moody facing off with Channing, um, you know, at the, at the reception or wherever. Yeah. Um, I, I have to say, I, I was thinking in that chained up moment, I was thinking, you know, Beckett, the way things are looking right now, Play your cards right. She's going to be a widow in a few days, because <laughs> she she certainly seemed to be. I don't know. Maybe it's the way she played it, but it's like when she came into the when she came into the the uh, music room, let's call it that, the piano place. And I admit, I and it's probably the way they played it. I thought for all the world that she was going to try to perhaps soften Beckett up a little bit, working on the assumption that she is the obvious. Uh, uh, plant oh. or uh, enemy, right? That she's going to try to get a little closer to Beckett, and and then Ross, of course, is kind of watching this, and it, it which was also a very odd sequence that that she and she turns the sound on to listen to Beckett when he's alone in the room before he even sits down and starts playing the piano. It's kind of odd. Turn the sound on. It's Beckett. Turn the sound on. Yeah, I don't know. That all played out weird. So, that that I mean, there are a couple of things about that. One being that at no point did I think that she was the person on the inside because, oh no, I didn't. It was, it was obviously so, the son from the word go. Yeah, uh, literally, you know, all those ex- exchanges with people, people saying, "Oh, it has to be, has to be the security guy, or it has to be the wife," and it's like, and there are three of them, so. Yep, we know which one it Son is. Son would never do that, yeah. Yeah. But given that they made a big deal out of the fact that they didn't know, thanks to not being able to hear the shouts from the viewing audience, it did <laughs> seem it did seem a bit kind of slightly unprofessional, I guess, that so first of all the Beckett goes off with um what's her name, the wife? Natalia. For Natalia, for for no other reason than you know, obviously he's got a soft spot for her, because it it it's totally explicit. He doesn't suspect her, therefore he is not following up on that as a lead. But then also, Rod's reaction is just kind of being pissed off about it, rather than sort of saying, "Oh well, it's a good thing that Becca is going off and following her," because. We want to keep an eye on these people, right? I mean, 
her her reaction to Natalia saying, I want to go to the embassy was, no, I don't think that's a good idea. Whereas actually, mm-hmm. they know they know something is up here. They know one of these people is in contact with yeah. the bad guys. So wouldn't it wouldn't it make more sense rather than kind of keeping them shut up and trying to contain something that obviously isn't contained to use their surveillance capabilities and goodness me, maybe even a yeah. little bit of technology to keep an eye on them. Yeah. And then let yeah. them go and do their thing. Yeah. I, I while while I'm we're on it, did you notice what it was the important things that she had to get was when she went back to the embassy? I have to pick up a few things. Did you yeah. see what she went and got? Her um, music. Oh, oh, right. Okay. Her music. She went to the piano and picked up her music. That's interesting because there wasn't there wasn't a piano in the Bureau of Weapons Technology that she could have used to play it. No, no, unless, or the hospital. Unless it was in a room we haven't seen, or the hospital. Unless yeah. it was a, unless it was a cool secret code on it, or as you know, as you might suspect, that she was going to the embassy to meet with somebody to get further instructions. Uh, or uh, and and it is really a shame that nobody bugged her so that they could track her down and either protect her or kidnap her. Oh wait, somebody did bug her, huh? Yeah, yeah. Somebody did bug her, didn't he? Yeah. If that wasn't if that wasn't point number four in my Channing is the bad guy, I don't know what is. So I I did think Channing was so obviously the bad guy in this that we were going to see more of a re- reveal of, you know, we're, we're at sort of midway point in the series. I was thinking we'd see more of a reveal of Channing being the bad guy, whereas actually, by the end of it, there's no confirmed connection between him and any of the others. The only, well, you, I mean, there's, the, there's what you alluded to, and obviously there's the fact that he lives in an absolutely enormous pile that suggests wealth even beyond what we had hitherto suspected. C- certainly he's a lot, he, he's got a much fancier yeah. house than Roz. I, I didn't make that comparison, but yeah, all right. Uh, yeah, no, you know, the, the, the thing is, it occurs to me, because they make a, mel- a big deal about it, I wouldn't be surprised if Mr. Channing had was playing both sides in this equation. If he was helping K steal the weapons for presumably a piece of the action, right? But if the operation goes through and the weapons are decommissioned, he's playing it to be on the team, the British lucrative contract for decommissioning the weapons. It wouldn't surprise me at all if he hasn't got a piece of that game too. Makes sense. Good or bad, clearly Channing's prime motivation is money. We've seen that in all of the kind of exchanges with Roz, because every time she makes a point about not being bothered about money, he looks like a salted slug. And he clearly <laughs> does feel that money is is rather important. More important. Um, yeah, not just from his kind of his nice pad. There is something amusingly bugs, I guess, that Ed goes over to Channing's place and he sees a bunch of high-tech junk lying on the floor. And, and he's like, isn't that Ross's stuff? And suddenly they put the pieces together. Hey, they're sleeping together. It's like, first off, if they were sleeping together, find her toothbrush or clothes or, or, you know, 
something a little more intimate than just a pile of junk, which honestly is what they're supposedly doing together is buying and, and selling her stuff. So, well, quite. But the, but the, the but, problem you know, it's would be that so she doesn't have toothbrushes. She has. But how would Ed, how would Ed, how would Ed know it was Roz's toothbrush anyway? So there's there's that issue, and we're and we are, so we're supposed to believe that the the tech that we see in that shot is somehow so unique that Ed immediately identifies it as belonging to Roz. But what what I can't get my head around even more than that is why is all of Roz's junk in this reception room essentially is the nearest room to the front the door or something it, it you know yeah when yeah. he brings him into the house why isn't it one of the other 90 billion rooms in this house i mean why isn't it in Roz's room yeah or in the storing the tech room rather than just kind of piled up against the wall randomly yeah straight. it's it's yeah it's very strange it it yeah <laughs> unless you know channing put it there so that ed would see it because he knew ed was coming so that he would go, oh, Ed's, uh, Ross has been over here. So, yeah, ooh, okay. More Discord in the group. Go get that and stick it in Beckett's backside with a little, you know, uh, that's, I, I, I'm sure he's trying to wind up Beckett. And if he is working against them, of course he's trying to wind up Beckett because Beckett will make mistakes and uh, split the team up. They'll be less efficient. Yeah, it's, it's a, uh, yeah. yeah, we are working him into a supervillain. And he may just turn out to be an inconsequential uh, soap opera side plot, but uh, he may uh, do. Um, but even if he's a supervillain, I suspect he's at least partly winding up Beckett because he enjoys winding up Beckett. And why not? Oh yeah, sure. Oh, it's easy enough to do. Certainly <laughs> is now. Well, yeah. There's something he did that was incredibly oh off, and I can't. Remember. I didn't write it down, but. I was going to bring it up and then I forgot to put it in my notes. So again, in, in, you know, typical, maybe it was, was it the line about Roz saying, can I have a personal life? No. Wow. <laughs> wow. Beckett. Yeah. Okay. Wow. <laughs> Speaking of unprofessional. Hey, Alex, am I your, am I your special, special friend? Says <laughs> Ed. Yeah. So, so, so you do like me? Just a little. <laughs> Ed, you're making me worried here that there was some brain damage when you were in those accidents of the first part of the series because you're acting like a teenager. And well, I think that probably is part of the point. But I, it it wasn't entirely clear to me what Alex was doing at this point. Like, no, I he's yeah. he's so transparent, and she knows what he's thinking. So yes, why why doesn't she brush him off more firmly? Because I don't think she's interested in him. I I think you're right, and I I really can't figure out that scene at the end. Hey, do you want to get it? I was getting a takeaway. Do you want to have a pizza with me? Sure. What what do you like on your pizza? Well, whatever you're having. I mean, as long as it doesn't have mushrooms. Okay, no mushrooms or or pepperoni or cheese or or. It's like, do you even like pizza? I expected the next line was going to be, or you with it. But I can't, I can't tell. And if she, and if, if, if Ed was going, don't you like pizza? And if she said, no, I don't like pizza. Would he have been so thirsty that he would have said, oh, we can have Chinese. Or how about, how about a curry? What, <laughs> what, what do you like? <laughs> I, 
I had no real plans for my takeaway. I was just making that excuse up. I, I, I couldn't tell. Was she just like trying to completely blow him off? Or is she screwing with him? Or is she, I, I, I couldn't tell where that was going. It was so, it was so stupid. Her, her lines about the, about the pizza toppings that, yeah. I also think it's a very interesting, we, we mentioned it last time. She is not a trained agent, but see if you can track down the, uh, the would-be assassin, Ed. Okay, come on, Alex, let's go. Not, not even a moment's hesitation. They are just the team. Ed and Alex doing mm-hmm. the dangerous stuff. Well, it, because I think tracking down an assassin is the dangerous sense. stuff. The, the thing is that Alex is pretty handy in a scrap, so it's useful to have her around for that point of view. Although I also we did have... Says, okay. Well, I was just going to say, we did have Roz throwing a surprisingly effective punch in this episode, which is kind of blurring the distinction between their kind of roles within the team a little bit because i think we i mean she she laid it laid out k with with one blow essentially i don't think we've had her do that kind of thing before no i don't think so i'm not saying she has a swung a bunch or two but Hmm. yeah uh, but yeah more more in the line of you know struggling to get away or self-defense or whatever not knocking someone out in order to get past them yeah um what i was going to say the other thing about this episode and again this is the change in format and i I say i found myself kind of kind of going really time for another fight time for ed to get beat up again right i mean it happens with remarkable repetition in this episode and uh uh luckily he pulls it out no he doesn't even pull it out in the last one he doesn't even succeed in the last fight because it's the poison that that does in Rostov Jr., not Ed's acumen yeah, yeah. as a as a fighter. So but maybe Ed's not the guy to go. <laughs> Strange. It's it's. There was another little bit of, um, I mean, uh, talking about Alex and her motivation not being clear. There was another little bit of ambiguity in the way the show was written or directed, which was where. Ed and Alex are creep, creeping around and they lay out Kay. In fact, Kay does pretty badly in this episode, doesn't she? Um, yeah. When Driscoll comes running into the office, they tell her, tell him, we need an ambulance. And he swallows the line. Like, you know, he, well, he believes them. He's the hired and muscle. Then, <laughs> and then seconds later, he says, they know about us. We can't let them get away. And there's nothing in between that would lead him to realize what has happened. There's no kind of explanation. Yeah, I mean, I I took that as being she. He got over. He did kind of get a better look at Kay, and then maybe he could see. So how did he infer from that that they know about us? They're there. They're at their headquarters. But, they but know they about were them. There. I mean, they found them. Right, but once he knows that they're not the ambulance people, then. Oh, well, if they're if they're the people who are in that they know we exist, they know we're here. I mean, it's not very good. I I I grant you that point, but you know, uh, assuming they were trying to fly under the radar, and now their opposition is in their main office, they know about us. They know they know about us. They know about conflict hardware. Maybe they don't know what they're doing. They don't know that. 
but they do know they traced him. They found him. So yeah, yeah, I I agree. It's it's not very, it's not very very well uh, thought through. One one of the interesting things about this episode and the writer is that there is no writing credit. That's interesting on this. That's not very common on British shows. No, it's something we've had before on yes. Yeah. No. Do you think that there is a? I I don't know this. I'm 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 just speculating. Okay. But I believe you can't get away without a writer's credit in in U.S. union rules. And I don't think the writer can have his name removed, but he can have a pseudonym put in if he doesn't like it. And I know we've seen that in Britain, stuff like Robin Bland for Terrence Sticks and and whatnot. But is it also possible that another alternative is that if you don't like the final product as you could just have your name removed completely? Um, I would have thought so, yes. I certainly know that Michael Dobbs, who wasn't the writer of, as in the screenplay writer of The Final Cut, which is the last series of the House of Cards, the original House of Cards trilogy, that he, it, the novel that it's based on was his. So he was credited for House of Cards and to play the king. But when Andrew Davies decided to write Margaret Thatcher having a state funeral into the final cut. Michael Dobbs was so disgusted by that that he insisted his his name was taken off altogether. So I think that does mean it can happen. But it's curious that we have had in each series so far an episode that has had no writing credit. And it makes me wonder whether they are all written by the same person who wishes for some reason to remain anonymous because certainly all the other episodes that we've had uh, this season have been written by writers who have written the previous previous seasons as well yeah, so they they seem to have settled into a fairly sort of stable rotation of regular writers on the show and so it's just it's it's mysterious to me what is the, What's what's behind this? Is this is this a different something each time where they have a script that you know someone someone wrote a script and they had to rewrite it so much that it was unrecognisable and they said I'll take my name off it, but that happened three times, or is it someone who actually doesn't want their name <laughs> published for some reason? I mean, I can't imagine any reason why a writer wouldn't, because for goodness sake, how are they going to get more work? Well, I mean, the the reason you put a pseudonym on there is so that people don't associate your name with some work that you think is particularly bad. So, I mean, that I could have it taken off. Maybe I, I, we'd have to. I'd have to. But if that was I'd the have same to writer, find out which episodes they were? Are they? No, no, it could be three different writers. We don't. We just don't know. It just it could simply be. Yeah, yeah. Maybe which, which the, does the seem management. like bad luck. Yeah. The, or, the, 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 the episodes in question. Or shotgun wedding. Well, I was going to say it could be it could be that it demonstrates that the lead writer or whoever is script editor, whatever we want to call him at this point, has a particularly heavy pen, and some people chafe at that. The more you rewrite my work, sure. the less I want my name on it. And it, you know, other writers may just like, yeah, fine, whatever, give me the money. That's, yeah, you know, but somebody or someone are just like, you know, I just I hate it when you do that. So take my name off. No, no, no. You were the, going to the, say which the, ones the they rewrite, were? 
the rewrite theory is 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 that seems very plausible to me. It was shotgun wedding, whirling dervish, that, and yeah. nuclear family. This episode, they do f- feel like my recollection is those were pretty full of plot holes, if if I remember correctly. But uh, well, even if they were different writers, but they were all being rewritten by. I mean, we don't know who. It, no, the question yeah. might be who do we consider to be the the lead writer on this? Normally, you'd say it's the script. Sorry, the yeah lead writer, yeah lead writer, I guess the script editor, who is Colin Brake, but we have these series consultant credits for Stephen mm-hmm. Gallagher and Brian Clemens, so presumably part of that series consultancy is sticking their oar in when they think the scripts don't quite fit what the show should be about. So it could have been any of the three of those, I would have thought. Now, I will just say, I don't remember in Whirling Dervish, but Shotgun Wedding also involved snipers. Mm-hmm. It did. And, so, and the team doing doing um, protection job. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Whirling Dervish was about the, the plane. Um, yes. But yeah. Man, possible. It's possible. I'm going to put our, in, in my uh, Chekhov's... Uh, Chekhov's gun category, obviously the cigar, but I think there might be two more in this episode. I think Roz's cricket obsession, which was not in evidence in season one or two, series one or two, is going to have some important part later in this series. I, I just think that they've put this in here for a reason. It's not just character development. At some point, at the end, they're going to have to, they're going to use that as a way of communication or a warning between Roz and Beckett as sort of played up again here, but they're, they're playing that cricket thing up a little too much for, well, it just, it feels wrong. It, it feels out. It feels out. And then the second one is uh Chekhov's tie class, which is obviously going to be used at some point in the future to either put Beckett in jeopardy. If ultimately the, the uh, idea came from Channing, or to rescue Beckett if the idea came from Roth's. But I'm guessing it came from Channing and it's to put him in it's to put him in jeopardy in some way. I'm I'll wait and see. I Yeah, I think you may bread. give I think you may give them too much credit on the cricket thing. And okay, I think possible. that the show is not serialized enough for a type in in episode five to come back as a serious plot point and, in a later episode and two or they three they don't have these they don't have these flashbacks that are previously actually it's been in three bugs. episodes the type in the cricket's been in th- the, the, no not the type in but the, oh, oh sorry no 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 the, 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 cricket. the cricket the cricket yes i just don't i don't think they're doing it deliberately that's all with that the type in i think they can't rely on people having seen this episode and they can't rely on people who have seen this episode remembering this episode and so they would have to have some kind of massive callback to it that's probably just as it would be just as easy to introduce oh, is some that new the type in that jeopardy Channing but we'll see yeah <clears throat> yeah I, I can i can i can see beckett leaving the office and Roz straightening his tie and say, oh, is that the type? I see you've got the tie class that Channing gave you. Yes, well, it went with this suit. Blah, blah, blah. And off he goes. And I, there you go. I, I just can't see how that. 
I can't see how that scene is is better than a scene where she just gives him the type in in the first place. Well, it might happen in the next episode. I mean, they, they did spill enough about Channing this episode, or I feel they did. And they also showed that Roz was, I don't want to say suspicious, but she she furrowed her brow after after Eunice, she sent Ed to go get the the tracker. And then when she hung up the phone, then suddenly she furrowed her brow, which to me says, huh, Channing. I don't I don't disagree the signals are there. I just think we don't have that degree of serialization on British television in nineteen ninety seven. People will watch one episode, miss another episode. You can't rely on them having seen it. If you're going to do something like that, you kind of need to mention it. A bit like the cricket thing, except I think that's too subtle, but the cricket thing gets mentioned three times. Doesn't matter if you haven't seen all the previous episodes, as long as you picked up on it once, you know what it's about. Well, okay, so devil's advocate here. We've had this discussion about Babylon 5, which is roughly contemporary, contemporaneous to this, that the whole idea of serialization in the 90s, when attempted, wasn't exactly always competent. And it's possible that the, re- that the, the conventions we see now, which are to beat you over the head with it before the episode starts, previously on Doctor Who, um, so that you'll remember that, came about because they did ill-fitting, fumbly stuff like this years before when they were when they were figuring out how to do it. You know, early days, we didn't know what we're doing. Anyway, I'll, 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 we'll, we'll stand to see. Um, I, yeah, we'll put a bit but, in that. Ha, ha. But I do want to say, let's just We've, we've talked about it, but let's just give some thought to the implications of somebody, anybody, giving the wife of a foreign dignitary a GPS tracking bracelet and literally telling them that it is a tracking bracelet. Okay, that's fine. Here, look. And I've, hanging I've onto got the this tracker. Cool... Yes, that's the key. It's like, I've given you this cool GPS tracking bracelet. You'll never need be lost again or they'll never not know where you are ever again it's like fantastic how do we find that uh this tracker that i'm not going to mention or tell you about or give you <laughs> yeah that that is really or, or fact even the idea of wearing a tracker i mean this is the closest thing we've got to science fiction in this episode is the idea of a gpa tracker you know just pin an air tag on her well this is better than an air tag i i, I do actually feel like you make a fair point about this being sci-fi we are probably overlooking quite how how that would have been perceived in 1997 that would have been seen as being quite futuristic i think whereas now we're like well everyone's carrying around a phone that's doing that yeah although they occasionally use phones for that in bugs they have triangulated people triangulating on the cell towers rather than actual gps yeah yeah so i mean it's it's the, the the tracker in your phone, well, my point being is that the tracker in your phone is just sort of like that amped up. This is, here's a separate dedicated device that we've put on you, despite the fact that there are tons of trackers in this. Well, no, hang on. I mean, the, 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 way, the, phone, the way the phone works now is it uses GPS to establish what your coordinates are. And then it sends. It does use that now. Using a radio, the information about where you are. And presumably, this bracelet does 
something like that. It just doesn't also have the facility to play Angry Birds. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm not saying that we don't are using GPS in the phone. That, that wasn't my point. My point was is that in at the time of 1995, uh, whatever year this one was, uh, seven, yeah, you could track a phone. Therefore, a phone was a device that you could be tracked by. The fact that a phone today is a far more accurate tracker is still just an extension of what they already were talking about using in bugs. The the bracelet is more like an air tag in that it is a dedicated device whose function is to to track track you you know it it that is more science fiction. Yeah, well, but I think well, the, the, the except the that, that I was telling kind of tag is. It's, no, but it's, 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 it's a personalized tracking device. In, the, in yeah. the same way that the AirTag is, but the AirTag is explicitly not supposed to be used for tracking people, and it doesn't have the capability to broadcast its position. It can only be detected by close proximity to an iPhone, yeah, an iDevice or whatever. So, I think the 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 kind of the high techness of this, if you like, which it, I'm sure there are things that can do this now, but even so, I'm not sure they're available on the kind of commercial market. The sure, high techness of it is, is its ability to to both do the GPS positioning and broadcast a signal to some receiver over considerable distance in what is a really, 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 really tiny package. Like, that—that that is, I, how, I, how much battery is that going to use? Or where is I that battery? I completely agree. But I'm, I'm going to say that they don't use it that way. It, it felt to me like Ross was still kind of using that handheld device as a tracker rather than, oh, I've got her frequency, her GPS coordinates are 32.758 by... 112.648. Where is that on a map? Oh, they're at a farmhouse here. She was using that thing as a locator. Didn't they say it was Not GPS? Really. They did say GPS, but did I they, saw they did. were they just blowing smoke, not understanding the idea behind GPS? That that's quite my possibly. Thought. I but, mean I think again, the the kind of understanding that we have of gps is down to its ubiquity in the devices that yeah. we use that's we're familiar with it because it's an everyday thing whereas in 1997 it probably got mentioned yeah. quite a lot in films and tv shows but people wouldn't Tomorrow have understood the world much about it because they wouldn't have been using it day to day in the way that we do yeah so i i, I guess yeah, and I say it's it's a more science fiction thing, but the, the the interesting part of that to me is just the mindset which is completely alien to us now about just I just put a tracker on your wife. <laughs> it's like I'm here. It's like like no, no, and she's like, fine, that's fine. Okay, we're good. <laughs> Get pause for a moment to think about how that could be used for good or bad. Or how creepy that is, or you know, will and based on what we saw of Roz tuning in on Beckett, and I think we'll switch back here for a second. The fact that Roz doesn't want Beckett to know that she's staying over at Channing's is clearly an indication that Roz understands that Beckett is being a petty little smirk to her 
because he has feelings for her. I don't think she's stupid. I think she sees that. And so that's a, I don't want to hurt Beckett more kind of moment. Nonetheless, these people have not held the highest ethical standards over the years. Is Roz keeping an eye on where Beckett is going? Like, oh, has he got a date tonight? Where did he ate care? Did they, did they go back to her place? Did, uh, like, it's creepy at that level too. Here, I've given you a treasure. <laughs> it's, it's weird looking back on that from, from 2023. I bring that up in case it turns up again later, but even if it doesn't turn up again later, if they'd done this show today, I think these discussions would have been very different about how... Yes, for sure. Much of Lost I Have Left is, I mentioned it in the uh, recap, but those vials that were shot up were unlabeled. I mean, they were the yes, right I've color. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and they were filled with shards literally... of broken glass. But that was literally it. She... she... The, the ones he was pouring down the sink, I can understand she might have gone to rescue some of that because the fact that he was pouring mm-hmm. down the sink. I mean, you're, you're trusting Driscoll to have selected the right serum, which is maybe a bit of a leap. But in the unlabeled batch, <laughs> the, the, the unlabeled ones, they just, they looked roughly the same colour. And anyway, why the hell were there so many unlabeled vials everywhere? I mean, what, how you, how is anyone supposed to make use of anything? In a lab full of just random stuff. Magical exercise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was... I mean, it's pretty. All those colored colored uh, bottles, you know, for shooting up. But, uh, yeah, that was I, hope it was... I hope it was the right one, Roz. I, I hope it was the right one. I don't know that I have anything else about the episode. It's a soap opera. I, I, I think they're trying to play to their strengths. The Beckett uh, strengths. I put that in air quotes. Sorry, uh, you know, uh, Ed Ed and Beckett from the soap opera land. Maybe they've tried to play that up a little bit so that they feel more at home instead of in the action adventure stuff. But uh, do you have anything else? I've a couple of things to to pick on, I guess. Um, well, no, maybe this is a genuine question because there could be an answer to it. I I don't know, but one of the key pieces of tech in this episode is the bomb that is armed by standing on the pad. You stand on oh, the yeah. pad and okay. you arm it, and stepping off it will detonate it. And yep. I don't know a lot about weaponry. I think some mines work like this. Like if you I believe so. If you stand on it, it pushes a pin in, and then releasing it is what causes the detonation to occur. I can't understand what the advantage of that is if you have the technology to just detonate it when you stand on it. So in what circumstances is this actually useful? I can't think of a good I can't think of a good excuse other than it's a nefarious diabolical plan to plot device. Yeah, I think you're Well obviously you're it's, a, there. it's a handy plot device because it's a know, useless it's weapon. I agree. Well, I, I felt like wanted, we could you, have you we could have used a bit of a demonstration of of how the thing was actually meant to be used, what it had been originally manufactured for before we saw it in this kind of contrived situation where we see how it is used in order to create some plot jeopardy for our protagonists. Yeah, I mean, with regards to a landmine that goes off with pressure detonation, I and I I can't be a hundred percent sure that they're even you know real. And if you look back to 
if you look back to uh, Genesis of the Daleks, the the World War II vintage era mines that they were using were supposed to be that way. But is that real? Not hundred percent sure that it's letting your foot off that causes the detonation. But I could certainly see how somebody might do that in a mechanical switch. That that yeah, might... my understanding, you know, my the understanding step that down is it primes it, and the and the step up. It's a it's a necessity yeah. of how how do you actually build a mine? You have to, you know, if you could build a mine where it detonated in one go, you would. And so, and if since you could this is an electronic wireless bomb, yeah. then all you want to do is to detonate it. And I I can't think of an excuse. You know, I could think of okay, I can. We're pushing it really hard here. Let's say that you had a column, a line of people, like a conga line, and you wanted to make sure you killed the second person in the line. So the first person steps on it. Maybe he's he's the the stepper, the guy, you know, like a food taster, except he's the guy who steps where you're not going to step uh, so that if there's a bomb there, it'll kill him instead. And you're walking you know, one foot behind him because that would be perfectly safe. And uh, for an explosion. So a a momentary delay or a as you step off, then it goes off. I could see that, but that's all eliminated by the fact that it's wireless and the bomb and the trigger don't have to be one in the same device. So no, it's just, it's completely, it's completely an excuse to allow Beckett to, and Roz to murder Kay. And well, yeah, well, yes. I mean, I think, I think it's more of an excuse to have the, the scene where they're, having to kind of reach for the keys and yeah, all of that kind of tense stuff. But yes, obviously they do then. And it's Roz again who gets to kill Kay, albeit this time she's kind With of... With an assist. ...forced to do so. Yes, yeah, so yeah. But yeah, by the... It's, it's bold well, Beckett caught Roz. Yeah. And, and arguably much more legitimate self-defense on this occasion. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not... I'm not a hundred percent saying it wasn't justified, but yeah, he definitely dropped the bomb at Kay's feet and then said to Roz, "Now, so that is yes, kill her." So yes, she had a gun. She was gonna shoot. It 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 makes sense. And apparently, the bomb wasn't big enough that if she shot Roz standing four feet away from her, that the bomb going off which I assumed was going to kill Roz too, maybe not, wouldn't hurt her or potentially kill her as well. But, uh, and it was kind of a lame explosion, I have to say, for bugs. It was their only explosion. We didn't explosion. get many explosions in this episode. No, I think it was the only one and it was not a good one because you could clearly tell that that was just a flamethrower being flared out the window uh, of that, Thing. It was. It was like, wow, that was, that was not a good one. Yeah. Also, Ed does not kill the guy. Um, no. Well, he, fortunately, they're he both wearing dark pants. With the poison, but well, you know, yeah, but in a fight, that yes, the guy's trying to kill him and that get it ruined. and go, oh, and stabs into him and into the dark pants. Which fortunately, they're both wearing dark pants, so we can't go. Oh, oh I don't know. Was it Ed or was it Rostov Junior? Oh, it has to be Rostov Junior. Um, I wasn't sure whether that was, I, th- I thought that was deliberate. I mean, I thought that was accidental ambiguity again, rather than being a deliberate 
way of keeping us in suspense. Okay, I'll I'll counter that with wasn't that a really weird scene where they kept going back and forth between Ed and Rostov Jr. fighting and Alex staring at the hypodermic needle? Yes. That was really odd. So like she's not helping. I'm just gonna stand here and stare at that hypodermic needle. Ooh, it's got poison in it. Oh, I wonder what's going to happen. <laughs> just, it was, it was weird. It was weird. I'd take my name off of it too. I think I, if I were the writer, I just got, yeah, no, no, I, I guess one, one last thing then would just be actually to reinforce the point you made earlier about the way tech is used in this or the way tech is not used in this. And in fact, it's explicitly disparaged in the scene where Roz tries to set the car alarm off using her gizmo and then just yeah. jumps on the bonnet in the end. Yeah, that's weird too. That was a little weird too. It's like, you, so your tech fails. Okay, yeah. Yep, yep. Tech isn't all that great, it turns out, in this high shit show about tech. Yeah. Well, the next episode, episode six, is Fugitive. Fugitive. Oh, I bet it's Beckett. And they have to track him with his tie clasp. All right, Simon, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure, as always. Listeners, I hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. You've been listening to Fusion Patrol. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll consider supporting us at buymeacoffee.com slash fusionpatrol or patreon.com slash fusionpatrol. For our monthly Patreon subscribers, we're currently running a special series on Babylon 5. Come join the conversation in the comments section of this episode at FusionPatrol.com. You'll also find there over a decade of past episodes. You can find some of our other works at SoundCloud.com slash FusionPatrol. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production. Next time on Fusion Patrol, we'll be looking at two more episodes of Neo Ultra Q. With the episodes Businessmen from the Sky and Pandora's Cave. Join the conversation.